Uh, there was an article in Popular Science and how it can solve these interesting problems with evolutionary algorithms. And I remember the writer then said, in the future, computers will be able to answer any question we have. Then it will be up to us that the real challenge will be asking the right questions. And so it's kind of, as we continue to move forward, that seems to be becoming more and more true. Welcome to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast, where Justin Grammons and the team at Emerging Technologies North talk with experts in the fields of artificial intelligence and deep learning. In each episode, we cut through the hype and dive into how these technologies are being applied to real-world problems today. We hope that you find this episode educational and applicable to your industry and connect with us to learn more about our organization at AppliedAI.mn. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Today, we have Eric Zwiefel. Eric is a director and technical specialist in the Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning Group at Microsoft. He helps customers build out advanced analytics and artificial intelligence solutions, leveraging Microsoft Azure and open source data science packages. Prior to that, he was a senior lead data scientist at Target as an operational lead for the enterprise data analytics and business insights testing team. He holds a master's degree in business intelligence and has taught graduate level courses in the master's of science, business intelligence and analytics program at St. Joseph's University. Thank you, uh, Eric, so much for being with us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I gave a a quick sort of like rundown. I know that's what you've been doing in your career, I guess, recently. Maybe you want to give a little bit of a a background, uh, you know, and maybe start from the beginning, I guess. How did you get to where where you are today? Yeah, I've had an interesting path to get here. I I have a bachelor's in biochemistry, and I started right out of school at Medtronic in clinical research. Worked a lot with clinical sites, kind of running the tests and so on. And then Medtronic got a site license for Spotfire. And it was all downhill from there. I started playing with (laughs) Spotfire and doing reporting and everything. And then just really got into, I've always been a computer nerd, but this really ignited the passion for data. Awesome. Yeah. And this was well before the term data scientist, I think, really meant anything to anybody. I think you graduated from college, undergrad, I guess, around 2000 or so, right? Yeah. How has some of the the field, I guess, changed? And and how would you maybe define what data science and artificial intelligence is, is today? Yeah, so I, I've seen a big shift from just in my time from more closed source to more open source. So the big players before SAS, MATLAB, and so on seem to have been usurped in a lot of ways by Python and R, although R seems to a little bit have fallen by the wayside and kind of practical day-to-day work that I've seen. I know I'm going to get a lot of uh, hate thoughts and comments directed about, about that. We've got a good audience. Okay, excellent. Python has become kind of the de facto, it seems, and leveraging open source kind of everywhere, Um, even to the point that at Microsoft, we try to be very non-opinionated on even the languages that you're using for data science and embrace the open source packages and so on. Seems like in general, Microsoft has moved into that direction more and more recently. Would that probably a true statement? Yeah, absolutely. I think you have seen a big shift to Microsoft, uh, not only embracing open source, but contributing heavily. Even in the machine learning space, we have packages for interpretability that we've open sourced, for model fairness that we've open sourced, for differential privacy and so on. So really trying to contribute back to that open source community. Awesome. Well, one of the things I'd like to ask people is uh, on the show is, how would you define AI? If you have a short elevator pitch or people ask you, what do you do during your your workday? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I try to take a very broad thought process when it comes to AI. AI for me is any way 
that we have computers try to mimic human intelligence. So the most ubiquitous AI to me is like a password reset bot where there is no real intelligence here, but it's trying to mimic human intelligence. And then it will obviously go very deep into neural networks and you know can grow from there. But just at the core, it's a computer trying to mimic human intelligence. Awesome. Uh, do you believe that humans will be able to then get into the emotional side? Emotional intelligence is kind of out there, but uh, it's another sort of like tangential question. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. I think it will be, you know, artificial emotions, just like computers. I don't think we'll ever really think in the sense that we do. They'll never truly feel in the sense that we do. Never say never, obviously. But uh, I, I think that you will start seeing fake emotional algorithms masking as emotions. And I think just as we're seeing advances in like the language processing space with GPT-3 and so on, like it's, it's some amazing stuff that it's able to do already. I can only imagine as, you know, well, with the pace of things, like a year from now, we're going to be saying, I can't believe it can do that. Yeah, it has been insane. I think it's the Ray Kurzweil talks about, you know, just that, that sort of essentially things happening faster and faster, right? This exponential growth. Yeah. And that, you know, it took, thousands of years to invent the wheel and hundreds of years to invent the sword and, you know, 50 years to invent the gun. And then all of a sudden, you know, 10 years and we have a cell phone and everything. Right. So yep. everything's been going more and more faster. Well, what, I guess, you know, the other more on like the personal side, how would you describe yourself? What are a few words maybe that, uh, that describe you or some of your strengths and weaknesses? Yeah. So, uh, I think the biggest description for me is father, uh, five kids live outside of the Minneapolis area. I'm kind of in the country. So, when I'm not doing artificial intelligence work, I'm either playing with the kids or have a wood shop, like to go out there and use a lathe, turn pens, that type of thing. Oh, nice. You can build any furniture at all or anything? When my wife tells me that I need to build something for her, then yeah, <laughs> then we build it. That's good. That's, that's good. Yeah, my, uh, my, my stepbrother built a, a bed okay. uh, once and it was, you know, of course, he didn't have all the equipment, but he had a friend who had all the, all the equipment to be able to make it. And I was pretty impressed at the end of the day, what, what you can do when you know somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Not for me. I, I, uh, I deal in zeros and ones. I tell people, but I have a lot of respect for people that can build stuff like that. Oh, I, I totally understand that. I think that's why I get drawn to, you know, working with my hands like that is at the end of the day, the zeros and ones, sometimes it doesn't feel like you've actually done anything or accomplished anything. You've done a lot of stack overflow searches, but you know, it feels like you're not moving the ball forward. At least if it's physical, I can see what I've done. Yeah, watch some progress for sure. Well, what what is the day in the life of a, a person in your role at Microsoft? Yeah, so I'm a part of a team called the Global Black Belt Team. And I get embarrassed every time I have to say that. But it's a, uh, a fancy Microsoft way of saying I don't get assigned to a specific customer group of customers. Instead, I work with all customers in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America but I narrowly focus on machine learning on Azure. And so I'm helping those customers unlock that machine learning on Azure. And it's very flexible day-to-day. -day. Uh, one day I may be talking to a company that's working on autonomous vehicles. The next I may be talking to a manufacturer who wants to do some quality assurance with some vision scenarios, or potentially even collecting IoT data, building models around that, or I may be talking to someone who's just kind of traditional using tabular data and they want to start looking at customer churn and so on. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, when you talk about IoT data, that's that's my bread and butter. That's something I've been working in and we do it at Lab651 fairly often. And actually, 
use Azure a fair amount and you know, a lot of stuff in Power BI for the display analysis side of it. But then, yeah, once you're talking about large, large data sets, that's where a lot of the power of the of AI can uh, come in. Are you solution architecting things where then the internal team within those organizations are actually going to be the ones to implement it? Yeah, oftentimes that's what we're doing with them, kind of solution architecting, or I might be working with customers in a follow-up capacity to say, okay, we are implementing now, we're running into this challenge, and so I can help troubleshoot that. Can even come in at the earlier stages before solution architecting and saying, here's what, for instance, the buzzword right now seems to be ML ops. Like, how can we take software development practices and bring them to machine learning and make sure that machine learning is repeatable and so on? And so we may be in the early discussions with senior leaders to say, here's why you need to go down this path. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at play in those spaces. Cool. And I, I had you done much on Microsoft's platform before you joined? Were you guys doing a lot of it at, in, in prior places or was, or is it because there's so many different platforms, so many different technologies out there. I'm just more or less curious to know if they kind of recruited you away from your current employer uh, yeah. because you knew it or you kind of like picked it up once you joined. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was, uh, I, I hadn't done much on Azure at all. I'd done a few little side projects, building out websites for for someone. Most of the work I did beforehand was Python on my laptop, you know, and then trying to find a random Linux server somewhere I could run a cron job on to productionalize it. There's probably still a few sitting out there that I wrote almost six years later. Got interested in Microsoft because my brother works here convinced me like hey you should come work here and so uh had a chance to join him and we've been able to do some work together oh that's awesome yeah that's cool well i mean yeah part part of the discussion that i typically have with people that are on the show and we usually talk about it more at the end but we can talk about it now is is yeah, how do people break into this field are there certain tips or tricks or i guess we, you talked a little bit about your path but yeah if someone is brand new coming out of school and they're you know, they're graduated, maybe, you know, computer science, you know, they, uh, they like math, you know, they're interested in more, you know, analytics and machine learning and stuff like that. Where would you suggest they go? What do they start looking at? Yeah, great question. Right now, I think a path that if I were to start over again, that I would be investing a lot of time is platforms like Kaggle to say, let me go and solve real problems. I'll get that kind of experience under my belt and then be able to create a GitHub examples that I can show to potential employers. And then, you know, networking whenever you can, understanding who at, you know, a particular vendor, if it's a vendor you want to work for, a particular company, networking with them through, you know, monthly meetups, through conferences and so on, and just getting to know them. Each organization is going to be different on how you want to get into that organization. So I think it's important to tailor your approach specific to that. But I think for just data science in general, yeah, just get a lot of projects under your belt. Just work through them. And sometimes what I like to do is create artificial constraints for yourself. So I was a more of a SaaS type user before, or Excel even, to do some of the statistical analysis. But I had a particular project at Target that I said, you know what, I'm going to use Python for this. I know it's going to take me twice as much time, but I'm going to use Python for it. And I'm very happy I did, and I haven't looked back. But yeah, that project took a little bit longer to complete, but that artificial constraint helped me grow into you know developing with Python. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been hard with COVID, I think, with some of these, uh, you know, getting a chance to have conferences in person and meeting people. But 
Uh, on the flip side, I guess I would say, just sort of thinking out loud here is, you know, now everything is online and you can attend things that happen all over the United States or even maybe even across the world. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I've also had a lot of people either reach out to me on LinkedIn or I've reached out to them to just say, could we connect? I've never met you before. I see you are maybe solving a problem that I'm interested in solving. And just can I take 30 minutes of your time to ask about your career? I've only had, I think, one person not respond to a query like that that I've sent. Most everyone else would love to talk and help other people along the journey. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, at the end and in the liner notes of the podcast episode, we'll be sure and put your your LinkedIn information or whatever other sites you want to share so people can, can uh, reach out to you. But yeah, I'll probably have you uh, give it here at the end as well. What are some interesting applications? Uh, you know, the, the podcast is really conversations on applied AI and yeah, there's, there's probably some things related to your business line of work that you can't talk about, but I'm, I am just kind of curious if you're sort of reading the news or, you know, other things. It can either be personal, it can be professional, it can be just, you know, sort of like stuff that you've seen over time. But yeah, what, what are some interesting uh, ways you maybe have been seeing AI being applied? Yeah, so the, the one that uh, recently has been just every time it, I work with it, it's very interesting to me is GitHub Copilot. I got in the beta for that. And so as you're developing, if you're not familiar with this, it is a natural language model trained on programming code. And as you're working in Visual Studio Code and kind of developing out, I'll start by declaring a function. And as I give the function a name, the model will start suggesting and completing the function for me based on the name that I've given it. And it also appears to look at how I've written my code before and the variables that are available to me in my code and will plug in those variables and those as I'm developing it. It still gives the user complete control over the eventual code. It kind of um, just suggests as a type ahead and you hit tab to complete it or you can cycle through a bunch of different uh, suggestions. But it has been incredibly accurate as I've built it out um, where I'm like, wow, I had once where it defined one function it was doing like create read update type things and it suggested about eight other functions all at once and i just hit tab and boom they were all completed and i had to just go back and tweak them a little bit so that's been a really really interesting one to see how that is playing out it's awesome yeah you know it's it makes me think about people that always sort of said in years past oh all these creative areas ai will never be able to do and it feels like we've been able to knock those barriers down, right? Now AI is writing music and GPT-3, as you mentioned, it can write poetry and now it's going to be able to potentially write code. Do you see any, uh, you know, damage to the way that like our livelihood, our, our productivity, like what we do as, as humans being threatened in some ways? That's a tough question for me. My initial response is yes. This worries me that it's going to impact our jobs. At the same time, I look at technologies that have come in the past, and I'm sure people at that time thought this is really going to impact our jobs. Perhaps the typists were first really worried about the computer, and they thought that now we're never going to have to type anymore. And maybe in the short term, it does impact some specific jobs. But I think it also frees you up to focus on other things. It is an interesting one as you start looking at different use cases. Are we going to have to have changes to the way that economies function even. I don't know the answer to this, but definitely an ethical and uh, philosophical uh, interesting area. Yeah, for sure. We actually had somebody at one of our Applied AI meetups last month was talking about this uh, thing called AWS Code Guru, which was, um, and I don't know, it, it, it was applies more security and coding best practices. 
Really? So it tries to write code that maybe ha has taken a look at or reviews code, I guess, for security concerns. And I know there's lots of security code reviews that, you know, you can pay consultants, you know, thousands and thousands of millions of dollars to come through. And wouldn't it be great if you could have an AI do this? But it feels like still today, in both of those examples, your example and that one, there's still a human doing the bulk of the work. This is just more or less assistive technology in some ways. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what we're seeing now in these technologies that are out there. They're really assistive, but it is still incumbent upon the human to kind of guide that and shape that and make sure it's appropriate. I think it was even the late 90s. Uh, there was an article in Popular Science around generational or excuse me, evolutionary algorithms and how it can solve these interesting problems with evolutionary algorithms. And I remember the writer then said, in the future, computers will be able to answer any question we have. Then it will be up to us that the real challenge will be asking the right questions. And so it's kind of, as we continue to move forward, that seems to be becoming more and more true. <laughs> That's totally true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Now you can plug anything you want into Google and it'll, it'll give you an answer. But yeah, have you actually written the right question that you're looking for the answer? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Do you read a lot about AI or science fiction? Do you have any, any books or anything like that that you might, might suggest? I mean, you might just be busy as well and just want to relax and read other stuff, but always curious to find out what people are, are reading or, or audiobooks, any stuff you're listening to today. Yeah, so I, I read all the time. I absolutely love reading. And one of the books that, as you're mentioning this, comes to mind is, I don't know if you're familiar with, he's a fictional writer, Brandon Sanderson, does amazing, like, my favorite author by far, but he has a book in there or in his series. It's a young adult book called Skyward. Actually, it's a series there. And it's got some interesting AI character or one interesting AI character in it that, yeah, I'd love to see that. But yeah, I do really enjoy reading about AI. The other one that was really interesting to me, I read this about a year ago and I can't remember the author's name, but it was a fictional book called After On. It was interesting because it starts to get at the intersection of quantum computing and AI. That is uh, an inflection point for me that's going to be interesting as we start to see quantum computing become real and AI being applied on top of quantum computing that we could start to see uh, generalized artificial intelligence take off faster than we can imagine just based on the way that quantum computing works. Now, I don't know for sure. I'm not, you know, making any predictions here, but it was a very interesting look at that book on, you know, what happened when basically artificial intelligence became self-aware and an interesting thought process on what might happen there. Your background is in, you said was in biochemistry. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I don't know a ton about quantum computing, but there is definitely some chemistry involved, I think, in that. I, I don't know if, if you can explain or talk a little bit about that at all. I know it's way off the subject of AI, but I wasn't sure if you'd read about that. Yeah. So quantum computing, I think at its core is, you know, currently computers are based on binary. It's either on or it's off. Quantum computing adds at least one more state where it's both on and off at the same time. And so now that completely changes the way that computers can function as a result, the way that coding needs to be done. And as I understand, and I'm not an expert here, but as I understand it, you start to write code that's more based on probabilities. And your code has to deal with quantum uncertainty and quantum probabilities. And that's how it is assessing things. Again, someone who is more versed in this is going to listen to this and say, yeah, you're, you were almost right, but not at all right. <laughs> uh, but that's my understanding of it. 
we had somebody uh, at one of our meetups, this, this was months ago, but um, she has done a lot of work in quantum and sort of like run the local quantum computing group here in the Twin Cities. And uh, she was talking a lot about just the power of large data sets, right? And that the fact you'd be able to analyze a lot of data at simultaneously and just the, the fact that, yeah, you're right. I think it seems to marry very well with regards to probabilities because that's really what you're doing at the end of the day with models, right? You're training things showing it a bunch of stuff and then under, trying to understand where things will land. And just the vast amount of data that you can process through a quantum computer was going to sort of, yeah, you're right, sort of like turn the tables, it felt like. Yeah. From my recollection. Yeah, absolutely. Is what I've heard as well. Well, awesome. Awesome. You mentioned GPT-3, though. You know, I was wondering if have you explored or play around with that? Are you guys using that much at, at, at Microsoft at all? Or have you seen some interesting ways that, that, that that's being developed? Yeah, so definitely in use a lot of Microsoft with injecting it into the different services we provide. And so I think you'll continue to see that. I've seen a lot of interest from customers in understanding how they can leverage this uh, more in their day-to-day. I haven't uh, had a chance to work with any customers yet specifically on implementing that for their use cases. Do you know if it's open to everybody or is it still in more of a closed beta testing? If I recall correctly, I think there's a open area where you can kind of play with it on their website, but I'm not quite sure where it's at in terms of, you know, actually developing it and injecting it into your own models. I think you're right. Now that I'm sort of talking out loud here, there was an open API that you could actually pay to use. I did have on the programs a little while back, a guy that did this thing called the AI dungeon. And it was basically dungeon master. (laughs) So every sort of like adventure you went on was uh, completely different. It was completely made up by using GPT-3, but they were one of the first people to be able to use it. Okay. Um, Basically, I think they actually were, had access to the model itself, but yeah, there was, it was under very, very tight constriction. Uh, And most people are using GPT-2, which actually wasn't that bad anyways, to begin with. I mean, there was a lot of good things that that had proven and shown a lot of, a lot of power with. So. You know, it's just, you're right. Who knows what GPT-4 is going to be like and all that sort of stuff. It's almost going to get better and better. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. You want to give a little, uh, you know, information with regards to how people would reach out to you and connect with you online, which social media channels or whatever you use typically? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Typically I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, That's the only social media platform that I currently use. I think I may be I don't feel old, but I think I'm a little too old to understand Twitter. I, I, I still don't really get it. So I just stay off of it. But instead, I, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Well, there, there are other things you wanted to uh, talk about or share, I guess, with people that might be listening to the uh, Conversations on Applied AI podcast and any other tidbits. Yeah, so I, I would just say I don't want to turn this into a Microsoft commercial, but, you know, happy to help out in that space. I love working with companies in the Twin Cities because it means no travel for me, but um, open to working with anyone and would just love to explore if they're particular use cases. No, no, it's, it's great. I, I love having people share what they do and, and regardless of, you know, what company you're working at. And so a lot of the whole point of this is to obviously, you know, talk about specific applications and connect people in the in the community. And it's very focused in the Twin Cities today, but we get listeners from all over the world. So I think it'd be definitely, definitely good to have people. So yeah, like I said, I have liner notes and stuff that we've talked about, you know, with regards to Brandon Sanderson and the Kaggle competitions and stuff like that. I'll have some, some links for people to uh, check out as well. 
I appreciate being on the show, Eric, for sure. And I'll, I'll be sure to uh, keep in touch with you. Um, you know, with regards to Microsoft, I was going to ask you offline, but now that, uh, you know, since, since, since you're on here, do you work at all with John Kuntz? Familiar with him? Yeah, actually, John just uh, joined my team. So now we are a direct uh, counterpart. So he's going to be focusing a lot on the AI and ML space, um, particularly with a focus in IoT and how you uh, unlock uh, what we've been calling AIoT. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So, cause he, when you said you're a global black belt, I think he, that's his title as well. Yep. So made me think about him and I've known John for, for many, many years. And he, I, I just to sort of like focus on the AIOT speak, you know, speak that's, that's really where, where my head is at because we do a lot of work in the internet of things at lab six, five, one. And I also have another company called recursive awesome, where we focus a lot on machine learning and uh, AI. And so you know, this whole idea of IoT and, and uh, AI sort of overlapping. It seems to be a new term. I write a lot about it and I seem to find it, but I'm not sure if I'm just in my own little echo chamber. What's your thought on that term? And is it becoming more industry adopted? Um, is it too broad, too generic? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd be, just be curious sort of like maybe what, what you're thinking about when you hear AIoT. So I do think it's become uh, more industry adoptive where I've seen it in a few places. I think it's still in the early phases of that term. I think the use case itself, though, to really get value out of IoT data, you need AI because the volumes are just too great. I mean, you can still get value if you're just doing simple dashboarding and things like that. But if you are collecting this much data, you can really accelerate it by looking at, you know, predictive analytics and things like that. In addition, when you look at AI, as models get more and more use case specific, deploying to the cloud may not be an option. So we've done work before on vision scenarios, especially that if you have a vision model and you want to use it in a factory, your networking folks that are responsible for your factory are, are not going to like you sending, you know, 30 images per second over their network and your users aren't going to like the latency. So really then figuring out how do we deploy down to the edge and run these models on edge devices it gets to be a very interesting exercise there in terms of making the models smaller yet still continue to get the performance you need and so on. There's just very interesting scenarios that you get in as a result that I think that AI and IoT are kind of like perfectly aligned there to help support each other in their individual endeavors. Totally. Yeah. That's interesting. You, you, you touched basically on edge compute there as you're sort of, as you're, as you're talking about it. And I think sometimes people think about just sort of this overlapping, but they don't actually think about maybe where the processing is done. Everyone's heads initially just says, well, let's just do it all in the cloud. But really this idea of moving more and more intelligence to the edge is, is something that has been talked about for a period of time, but now it kind of has to be done. Like you're saying there, there are these offline scenarios. There, there's even times when it's just not connected. I mean, I, I deal a lot in cellular. And so, you know, while people want us to think that cellular is connected all the time, it, it really isn't. I mean, I was actually out running the other day on my phone was just, I was in the middle of the city and my phone had no connectivity for no reason. So there's just a lot of things that you're going to need to make sure that happens sort of offline. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of offline processing. And then the other thing that is interesting to me, and I think it's a one of the next key areas when it comes to machine learning that I think you'll see a lot of work on is federated machine learning. How can I train a combined model without ever moving the data to a centralized place? Because this gets around, you know, maybe you have data residency requirements that I have to work around. I have privacy requirements that I have to work around and so on. So I think you'll start to see a lot of work on 
instead of moving the data around, can I move the model around and have the small compute just slightly update my you know, weights and biases on that subset of the data, move it back or however that might work. Um, I've seen a few research papers, but I think that's kind of an area that's ready for a lot more work to be invested. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. We've done some dabbling and in, in looking into Azure RTOS, right? There, you guys have their own, you have your own real-time operating system kind of starting to, to live at the edge, helping people build out models there. Is that true? I believe so. But yeah, that's where you're kind of over the, over the tip of my skis in that area of Azure. Okay. Maybe, you know, I'll have John on the show. I, I, I should reach out to him. Absolutely. See if, yeah. to, see if he wants to join, because uh, I know he could talk about that type of stuff, more and more specifics around their RTOS and stuff, or what you guys are doing there. Yeah. Well, awesome. Cool, Eric. No, I appreciate all this. Great. This is great. And um, yeah, like I say, for sure, I'll, I'll be sure to list you and uh, make sure to have people reach out if they have any questions. And appreciate you being on the show today and look forward to keeping in touch. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. You've listened to another episode of the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. We hope you are eager to learn more about applying artificial intelligence and deep learning within your organization. You can visit us at AppliedAI.mn to keep up to date on our events and connect with our amazing community. Please don't hesitate to reach out to Justin at AppliedAI.mn if you are interested in participating in a future episode. Thank you for listening.